Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Three times a year, the Hebrew people were commanded in the Hebrew Bible to get their whole family together and travel to Jerusalem to worship for a specific festival. Now, there were multiple festivals in the lives of the Jewish people, but there were three specific festivals that the people of God were commanded to come back to Jerusalem, come back to the, te- to the temple, and to worship him in the midst of all the people for these festivals. Now, these festivals were in the spring, the early summer, and the fall. The spring festival was Passover. And it was a commemoration, a reminder of the things that God had done when the people of God, Israel, were in bondage in Egypt. The Feast of Passover, which was a day that led into a week-long feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it was a time for God's people to gather back together at the temple and remember that they were once slaves, but now they are set free. God freed them. So that's in the spring. The second festival took place in early summer. It's actually happening today. It's called, uh, it's called um, Pentecost, also called the Feast of Weeks. It was the festival that commemorated the people of God being freed from Egypt and being brought to Mount Sinai and being given the covenant and the law and being called God's people. So the first festival in spring is us coming, is, is the people of God coming together to remember that God passed over the homes of their ancestors and didn't kill their firstborn and set them free. The second festival was them being set free and being brought to a mountain and giving, a, giving commandments and being called God's people. They were now made God's people. They had, a, uh, they had an identity. It was Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. And then the third festival happened in the fall, typically around September or October, and it was called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's also called Sukkah. And what the people of God did is they gathered in Jerusalem and they celebrated this festival by building these tiny little makeshift tents all around the city to remember that God not only saved them and gave them a new identity, but also preserved them while they wandered around in the wilderness. God was their covering, their shade, and even though they had no formal home because they were still wandering as the people of God, he was their covering. He was their tabernacle. He was the one who was their shade. So three times a year, the people of God would come to Jerusalem and celebrate these festivals. And this journey from wherever you lived, if you were a Jew, on the way to Jerusalem, on, your, on the road of travel, there was, there was a collection of songs that you sang when you went from your home to Jerusalem. 
They were called the Songs or the Psalms of Ascent. In our Bible, it's Psalm 120 through 134. And I want you to catch a vision for what this is, because this is our new message series that we're going to study today through probably the, uh, the middle of next month. I want you to catch a vision for what this looked like. You've got these Hebrew people living on the outskirts all around Israel, some living as far as out where Babylon would be, up where Turkey would be, some out in Saudi Arabia, out in the desert. And three times a year, they would gather together and they would come with their families to Jerusalem. And I want you to imagine what the journey was like through the desert, through the terrain. If you're coming from the mountains, you're kind of walking down. Lots of trees, lots of rivers. If you live as a, uh, as a nomad out, out in the wilderness, you're wandering through the desert into Jerusalem. But three times a year, you've got the people of God all around the known world starting to flock to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple, and all of them are singing the same songs. It's like a mixtape. And everyone's playing the same one. And they're singing these songs. And I want you to imagine early one morning, a a dad wakes up and he's like, all right, kids, it's time for the journey. It's time to go celebrate Passover with the rest of God's people. It's time to get to Jerusalem and celebrate Sukkah. Do you have the tent pegs? Did you you bring the, the tent poles? Make sure they're on the donkey and everyone's bustling around and packing up and, and everyone's getting together and, and, and everyone's like, okay, are we ready? We got everybody? And so your family starts heading out of your town and then the other family heads out of their town and uh, out of their house and then this, this one family groups up with this family and then they all start traveling together and then you've got this pack of about 50 people, five, six families, and they're just walking towards Jerusalem, and somebody starts singing. Maybe a dad from one of the families starts humming a tune, and then a mom from the other one just kind of is like, I know that one, and she starts singing out. And then pretty soon, this entire group starts singing the praises of the Lord, and they don't stop until they make it to Jerusalem. And when they make it to Jerusalem, I want you to picture this. The temple is built in such a way that leading up to the temple are 15 steps. There are 15 Psalms of Ascent. When you arrive, what you find is that there is a Levite, a priest, standing on each step, and those Levites are singing those same songs that you have been singing the entire journey. That's what I want in your mind as we start going through these songs, because they have an unbelievably rich history for God's people. Some of these were saying before the exile, some were saying after the exile, but this collection of songs were the songs that were saying when the people of God would gather together and come to worship the Lord. Now, there are no more temples for us to go worship at because we are now the temple of God. The presence of God resides in us. So we're not going to a temple, but as the people of God, we may not be going somewhere to a temple to worship like these folks were, but we are on a journey. We're on a journey every Sunday morning when you wake up and you start trying to get your kids out of bed because it's time to go to church on Sunday morning. But not just that, your journey, it's, it's every day. If you look at the way that you live your life, it's, it's very similar to the journey that we see these, these pilgrims 
these wanderers going from their home to the city of God because once you got saved, you're headed in one direction. And that is to meet your maker one day when he will gloriously raise you from the dead. He will give you a new body and you will spend eternity with him. All of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus are headed to the same destination, the same place in eternity. And so if you start looking at your life not like a tourist where you're just kind of like here to see the sights or you stop looking at your life as just, I'm just trying to make it in this town, just trying to make something for myself. I'm just trying to make something for my family. I'm just trying to get enough saved up so I can have this kind of retirement. I just want to set my kids out on the right path. If you stop thinking about your life as just trying to make it here in this world and you start looking at every part of your life as a journey, then every decision you make is one step closer in this destination to be transformed like your king. And all of this imagery is what I want in your head as we're reading these songs. Because these songs filled the air of the journeying Hebrews, and my desire is that these songs will fill the air of our lives as well. So are you ready? Let's hit play on this ancient mixtape, and let's get to it. Are you ready? Let's go. Go to Psalm 120. Now, these are short, and so here's what I'm going to do this time. I'm going to, uh, typically, we'll read a little bit, pause a little bit, read a little bit, but since they're so short, I'm going to read the whole thing so we get a, a sense for what the whole song sounds like, and then we're going to break it down verse by verse and kind of dissect what's happening in here, because psalms back then, songs back then, and songs today are still the same. They're wrapped with uh, metaphors and imagery and words that say that, that have specific meanings are actually representations of larger things. And so we have to spend some time kind of dissecting what the psalmist is saying, because when he's using specific locations, for example, uh, like in verse 5, when he talks about the, the city of Meshech and Kedar, like that's a literal city, but that city represents so much more than a geographic location. So let's read it, and then let's go back and dissect it. You with me? Let's get to it. Psalm 120, verse 1. It says, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, O deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech and I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. See, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Now, let's go back and let's take a scalpel and start pulling this text apart to understand what the psalmist is talking about. In verse 1 and 2, the psalmist cries out in distress, and we're told that the Lord answers him. And he's crying out in distress because the world that he lives in, the culture he's a part of, in these foreign towns, is filled with the same thing. Everywhere he looks, he sees the same thing. Liars. Deception. 
People trying to manipulate other people so that they can get ahead and push other people behind. It's like this ladder that everyone's trying to climb, but the way you get ahead is by stepping on the fingers of the people you climb over. This is the culture that this guy is living. He's looking around as a person. He, he trusts God. He loves God. But everywhere he looks, all he sees is deception on TV, on his phone, at store, in stores, at work, in politics, in college classrooms. It doesn't matter where he looks. Deception, deception, deception. It's so uniform that it's almost like there's something behind all the deception. And he's had enough. So he cries out, Lord, save me. What does the man who looks around in culture and all he sees is lies and deception do? He cries out to the only one who can save him. And the word that is used here in verse 1, Lord, that's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is, whenever you see Lord in all caps, that is the name of God. If you look that up in Hebrew, that word Lord is Yahweh. That is God's name. That is how God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. Now, leading before the exile... Jewish people regularly, Hebrews, they regularly said the name of Yahweh. They were commanded to speak the name of Yahweh because that was their God. After the exile, there becomes this thing where it's like it needs to be this sacred thing because we didn't treat it with enough respect and we had to be sent into exile. So after exile, much of the reading that you find in Hebrew culture, they start replacing these vowels and no one will say the name Yahweh. So the tradition following the exile is like you don't say that holy name. But before then, the encouragement is, no, you say it all the time. You talk to your kids about it. You remind them what God you serve because this world is offering lots of gods to serve, but we serve the one true God, and his name is Yahweh. He is I am. He has always existed. He is all the provision for all of his people. He is everything that you need and more. He is Yahweh. And so what does the guy who's surrounded in deception and lies cry out to? He cries out to the one true God. He cries out to I am. He says, Yahweh, deliver me, which is so fascinating because the solution he's asking for is not God fix this culture so that I can have a nice life for myself. No, his, his demand is, God, save me, deliver me, pull me out of this culture. I'm tired of this culture getting in me. I need you to pull me out of it. I've got to get somewhere, and, and here, this isn't it. I've got to leave this place. I've got to forsake some things. I've got, to, I've got to stop caring so much about all these things that I've saved up and built, and I've got to get to somewhere else. God, save me. Deliver me. And he says it's time to leave, but why is it time to leave? We find out in verse 3. It's time to leave because there's no end to the madness of deception. So here's where we start dipping into some of the imagery here. In Psalm 57, 4, Psalm 64, 3, there's this common illustration metaphor that's used for arrows. Arrows in the Psalms symbolize words that are hurtful or deceptive. So if we understand and start leaning on some of the other imagery in the text, 
When we see him say, what, is, what shall be given to you? What more shall be done to you, deceitful tongue? He's looking at the culture and all the lies, and, and he's saying, what possibly could be given to all of you who are living your lives filled with deception, who have manipulated people to get ahead? What is your payment for this? And he says in verse 4, a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. What will be given to lying tongues? What's the inheritance of people who get ahead by deception? It's that they will receive more fiery darts of deception. There is no end to living your life if it's led by lies and deception. Because all that happens is you receive in return lies and deception. And we see this with people. When you try to put on a front or put on a face or try to project, you as, project yourself as something that you're not, the response to people is they start treating you in a way that you're not. So guess what? No one ever really gets to know the real you because they're responding to the deception that you're putting out. And it creates this entire culture where if no one's being real, then no, one's, no one values reality. If no one is putting out like honesty and truth, then that is never valued in that culture. The only thing that's valued is the thing that everybody's throwing everybody's way. And so he's saying, I'm looking around and all I see is lies and deception and I don't see any end to this because the only thing that's gonna come of lies and deception is more lies and deception. So what's the end to this vicious cycle? The only end of the vicious cycle is to get out of the cycle. To be pulled out. And here's the thing. You can't pull yourself out. Some third party who's not in the cycle has to reach down and pull you out. Do you understand? That, that, that's, the, that's why we all needed to be saved. Because no one in this room has the capacity to save yourself. The reason why you can't save yourself is because you're the problem. There's no solution you're going to come up to solve the world's problems because you are the world's problems. Sin was birthed on the inside of us, and it's just manifesting in the most disgusting ways, and then we think these disgusting ways can solve the problems that we created, when all in reality, all we do is just create more and more problems. So what is needed is some third party outside of the system of corruption reaching down and saying, I will pull you out and I will save you from this. And the psalmist understands it, and that's what he's crying out to the Lord for. Verse 5, it says, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech and dwell among the tents of Kedar. So the psalmist is looking around and he's seeing deception and he sees that there's no end to deception and he starts seeing a sense of responsibility. How did I get here? Well, I got here because I wanted to be here. I got here because somewhere along the line, I believe that in order to get ahead, I have to be a little deceptive. Somewhere along the line, I believed the lie that I wasn't created in God's image and I wasn't a very good image bearer and I wanted to reflect the culture more than I wanted to reflect my God. I was more interested in people liking me than God liking me and that's why I bought this house in Meshech. Now, where is Meshech? I got a map for you. Here it is. I put Jerusalem on there so you know where everybody's heading, but Meshech is way up in the north. This is the region of Turkey. What am I doing? Meshech's up here. Here's Jerusalem. 
and Kedar's right on here. So this area down here, Saudi Arabia, up here is Turkey. Look how far these regions are from Jerusalem. And the, God, the psalmist is saying, I have built homes in these far off cities thinking that I could have my God amongst people that do not love my God. And I thought that I could live this life and I could be holy and I could be pure in the midst of people who want nothing but war. And I'm realizing that I have now set my tent so far from God that the only way out of this is to leave my hometown. Maybe I was born in this hometown, but, but whether I was born here, whether I grew up here, maybe I moved here, I'm looking around and I'm seeing that I, I have stayed here too long. I have put tents in these cities. So these cities here, Meshech uh, and uh, Kedar, they're, they're symbols, they're symbolic. They're actual cities, but they're cities that represent a position or a location that is so far from God that the things of God are not the things that the culture values. The things, that the, 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 the things that the culture values are the complete opposite of God. And now you're living and trying to make a, a living for yourself. You're trying to, to work and, and build a home and build a little garden in the backyard in an area where no one values the things that you value. So this guy's looking around saying, I've got, I've got neighbors who lie to me on the left. I've got neighbors who lie to me on the right. In fact, when I talk about peace, which is what I'm for, and that word peace in Hebrew is a word shalom, and it doesn't just mean peace. Peace is a really lousy English translation, but English doesn't have a word that directly translates to all the things that shalom is, because shalom doesn't just mean peace. Shalom means wellness, wholeness. It means a completeness. It is a sense that you in your deep, the deepest parts of your soul are being prosperous and fruitful and that things are at rest. You, you may not have answers to all of the turmoil, but there is a sense of understanding and rest in the midst of the turmoil. There is a, there is a healthiness to who you are and where you're living and your life. And when you step back and you look, you just say, man, things are well. Things are shalom. And, th and this was a, a common thing that, that Hebrew people would say to which, one another. They'd, they'd look at each other. It was a greeting. Shalom. It was a way to speak to one another. Man, peace to you. Wholeness to you. Not half wholeness. Not this thing that you're going to pick up from the world that they're going to sell you as peace. But really the stuff that only God can provide. That's what I want for you. Shalom. So he's saying, I live, I live in the midst of these neighbors who, who are lying and deceiving. I shouldn't have built my tent here. I shouldn't have bought property here. But this is where I live, and there's no end to it. And, I, and all I do at, you know, at barbecues, I'm in the backyard, and we're talking, and all I want to talk about is peace and wholeness and wellness. I want to talk about fruitfulness and the things God's doing in my life. And every time I talk about peace, all they want to talk about is war. And that word war is strife. It literally means hand-to-hand -hand combat. It's a word I think in our culture would best be translated as arguing and fighting about things that don't matter. What I want is wholeness and peace. I don't want to surround myself with people who, who, who value shalom, who value this, who want to get deep into this. I want to be I want to be challenged. I want to be, I want to be filled with this kind of stuff. But, but when I talk about it with the people around me, all they want to talk about is strife and conflict and hand-to-hand -hand war. They just want to fight. And frankly, 
I've had enough of it. Now, this is interesting because in the first song that the families are singing on the way to Jerusalem, the first track is a song about leaving where you live. So the the first step of the journey requires you to start singing about leaving some things behind. And this is why it's so important for us to study these, I think. Because it communicates to us the importance of how we're supposed to think about the journey we're on towards our king. There was a point in time, if you call yourself a Christian, where you, fors- you, you turned your back on this world, you forsake everything that you were born into, you, you turned your back on sin, you, you repented, you turned to the Lord, but that's not a one-time deal. That's something that you start making a habit of a regu- uh, on the journey, because on the journey, you start re- the Holy Spirit's like, hey, um, yeah, I know that you thought you left everything behind, but like, you're still carrying that baggage of unforgiveness. So you got to unpack that. You're not going to get much farther on this journey until you unpack that. So yeah, I turned my back and I I, I liquidated all my stuff, but I started realizing that I I actually packed a few things in my backpack that are now weighing me down. And if I want to pick up the pace and I want to sing with the people and make it to my destination, I've got to continue to unpack. It's a habit I've got to develop in my life. I got to cultivate not just one time forsaking, but all the time forsaking. I can't stop letting things go. And this is why this is so important, because it is a song that starts you out on a journey, and the very beginning of the journey is letting things go. You can't stay where you are. You have to move. So let's get to Psalm 121. So this is the second track. So the last one sang, and I just, just imagine the way, man, I just... I picture these families all walking together. Imagine like if we're a collection of families and all of us are heading to Jerusalem. And somebody in the back is just starts, starts singing this song. And somebody else jumps in over this, this one. And that's kind of the reflection of 121 because there's two voices that are present in this psalm. It starts off with someone declaring something and then somebody else responding to the truths that are real because of the thing that person declares. So, some, so one person over there in the back starts off and says verses one and two, and then somebody else over here shouts back at the person the things that are true because he said the things in one and two. All right, so let's get to it. So think about it this way as you're reading it. Verse one, it says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? Well, my help, it comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. All right, now pause. I want you to imagine this. We're all walking along, right? And some dad over here in the corner. We get to the next track. We just, okay, we've left. And now somebody's like, somebody starts singing, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? And then somebody over here smiles like, I know this one. Mm, this, is my, this is my favorite one. And he says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And the person who starts smiling, he starts saying, man, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Do you see the, the, the two voices in, in the song? It's beautiful because it, it encourages us to see things all through community. That there are times when we're sitting here reflecting on the truth that like this is, this is true. And it's independently true of the fact that I am connected to a community. It is true that God saved my soul. But he didn't just save my soul. He saved my soul and he made me a part of a family. And now I'm connected to things that I weren't connected to before. And when I start getting around God's people, they start parroting to me, sharing with me the same ideals and truths that I hold in my own home. 
This is, man, this is getting me excited. I'm not going to apologize. So somebody's out here, man, I lift up, I'm walking, I'm walking through this journey, I'm walking through the desert, and I'm looking up at all these hills, and I'm wondering, man, where, where does my help come from? Well, my, my help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. And somebody else shouts out my ear, man, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not, be, will not slumber. See, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. See, the Lord is your keeper, my man. The Lord is your shade on your right hand, the Lord, so that the sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Are you seeing the pattern? This is the song the people are singing as they're going along. The Lord will keep you. The Lord will keep you. He is your keeper. The Lord will keep you. The Lord is your keeper in verse 5. The Lord will keep you in verse 7. He will keep you, the end of verse 7. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. All right, let's dissect this one. This is a good one. We're in track two, and we're starting to reflect on the journey. Our feet are, we've left, we've left our hometown. We're wandering through the desert, and now we're looking out at all the things surrounding us, and we're seeing all of the shapes that God has created out in the world. We're seeing hills, and we're seeing mountains, and these are representations of the things that the world offers us to put our trust in. I mean, do you see this massive mountain? You see this, this structure that will not be moved? Put your trust in this. Now, there's, a, there's, a, there's an undercurrent here that, that we as Gentiles here in 2022 are probably not going to pick up. So let me dissect this a little bit from you, for you. Once the psalmist leaves the land of deception, he starts looking around at the geography of the region, and he's surrounded by hills and mountains. Now, the, the crazy thing about it, it doesn't matter, and we've said this a couple times in, in Acts, um, the city of Jerusalem sat at the top of a hill wasn't the, the tallest hill in the area, but it was sitting at the top of a hill. And at the top of that hill is where the temple was, and that's where God's presence on earth resided. And so anytime that you were going to go to Jerusalem, you always went up to Jerusalem. That's why these are the Psalms of Ascent. Because it doesn't matter where you are on earth, as you're headed to Jerusalem, you're always going up to the Lord. Now, the reason why you're going up to the Lord is because there was also this common motif in ancient culture, that the places where the false gods resided was always on the top of a mountain. And you see this in ancient uh, Hebrew literature too. I, we've dissected this a couple times, but just a quick recap. After David, King David died, the, the nation was unified under King David. King David died and his son Solomon took over and built the temple that all these people are going towards. Once he died, his son took over and his son was kind of a nightmare. And he treated the people like a taskmaster. He, he, he abused the people, and the people rebelled, and the nation split. There was this massive, like, kind of civil war, but there wasn't actually fighting in war. The nation just split in half. And after Solomon, you have a split nation. You've got the south, which was referred to as Judah, and you had the north, which was referred to as Israel. Well, guess where Jerusalem was? In the south. Jerusalem, the temple, stayed in the south in Judah. So what do the people of the north do? Where do they go and worship when they can't go back to Jerusalem anymore? Well, they start making little makeshift temples and stations of idolatry up 
in the north in Israel, and they were always made at the top of hills and mountains. And as you read through the prophets, you'll see this common theme pop up where God will tell a prophet, I want you to tell Israel that I'm judging them because they set up idols in the high places. The high places were literal high places, the top of mountains and hills. And so this is what the psalmist is seeing as he's heading towards Jerusalem. He's lifting up his eyes and he's surrounded by hills and mountains. And those are geographic locations. They're literal mountains, but the mountains aren't what's significant. What's significant is what's at the top of the mountains. Because there weren't just places of idol worship. There weren't just like little temples where you'd go up and you'd bow down to like this little carved god or whatever. These places were like major places of worship. They would build gardens. They would build trees. They would build these massive places of worship. There was actually a reference in Jeremiah 3.23 about the way that some of these, the top of these mountains would operate within uh, uh, the, the way that you would worship was through sexual means. And Jeremiah says, hey, uh, all the commotion and the orgies on the top of the mountains, it's a delusion. So here's what I want you to picture in your mind. The, the psalmist is walking from his home towards Jerusalem, and as he's walking through the desert, he's looking up at all the mountains, and what he's seeing is advertisements, billboards. Don't go all the way to Jerusalem. Just pit stop right here. There's a place of worship right here. You can do your Jehovah Yahweh thing, but, 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 but also this like Molech thing. You could, you could, worship, you could worship Yahweh, and, but even though this is a pit stop for Baal. Come right up here to the top of this mountain. Don't take your family all the way. Just shortcut it right here. Do whatever rituals you need to do, and then you can go home. Mix your worship. Don't just be devoted to God. Mix your worship with some idol worship. And so what the psalmist is doing is he's looking around and he's seeing all these invitations and he's saying, where does my hope come from? Is it from the top of these mountains that are offering me protection through false gods? No. Nope. My hope comes from the Lord, the one who made all these mountains. So he's walking along, and that's the first declaration of the song. Guys, crowd of 100 people, families all the way to Jerusalem, I'm looking up and I'm seeing all these mountains. Where does our hope come from? Does it come from these mountains? And like, they're like, no, don't. No, it don't, because it comes from the Lord, the one who made the mountains. And then somebody in the back, the back shouts out in verse 3. He says, that, that Lord that you put your trust in, the one who made these mountains, he is not going to let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Now, this is another fascinating motif because this calls to mind 1 Kings 18.27. There's this story of Elijah the prophet with a showdown with the prophets of Baal. There's over 400 of them. And they're having a little showdown to see who the real God is. Is it Baal or is it Yahweh? And so Elijah offers, it, it, they're in a three-year drought. There's not been any rain. There's no water anywhere. All the water is scarce. And Elijah says, let's have a little competition to see who's God's real. Let's set up an altar. We'll put a sacrifice on it. And whoever God answers by fire is the true God. And they're like, yeah, of course. We will totally take you up on that deal. 
So they make the sacrifice, and they start getting around, and they start making all these sacrifices, and we're told that they're like cutting themselves and making like these horrible sacrifices. They're trying to, they're trying to summon false gods. They're, they're trying to summon the power of demons is what they're doing. And guess what? Nothing. Silence. And the whole time they're doing this, Elijah's sitting back. I imagine leaning against a rock, and he's, he starts mocking them. He says, he says, maybe you should pray louder. Perhaps your God is going to the bathroom. <laughs> but then he says this other thing. He says, perhaps you should shout louder because maybe he's asleep. And this is a theme that runs all through the, uh, the major prophets and the minor prophets. It's this idea that there is only one God who never sleeps. All of the false gods they sleep. All of the angels, the demonic spirits who rose up against God and said, I can do your job better than you and have now positioned themselves as false gods and demand worship from, from, from mankind by sacrificing children and making you bring your sacrifices to them. All these false gods who set themselves up on the mountaintop, all of them don't have the power that Yahweh has. All of them, they sleep. They can't answer when you call upon them, but there's one God who always answers every time you call upon him because he never sleeps and he never slumbers. And so the psalmist is calling this imagery into the minds of the Hebrews as they're singing this song that there is one God, we serve him, and he is the one who always watches over us because he never goes to sleep. He's watching over you when you're awake and he's watching over you when you're asleep. And so he starts calling out, the psalmist starts calling out these truths about putting your trust in the Lord. And these are the things that are true about that statement. When you trust the Lord, you're trusting in the one who never sleeps. You're trusting in the one who protects you on the journey. You're trusting in the one who is your shade from physical and spiritual attacks. He watches over every aspect of your life. You're going, you're coming, you're sleeping, you're eating breakfast, you're going to work, your poor habits while you drive to work. He sees it all, and he watches over you. That's the God we serve. Now, what is the psalmist saying here? Is he saying that when you trust in the Lord, bad things will never happen to you? No, that's not what he's saying. Well, then what is he saying? Because it seems like he's saying he's going to protect you from the sun and the moon and all evil. It seems to me like he's saying if you put your trust in the Lord, no bad things will happen to you. But we know that isn't the truth, so what could he be saying? He's saying that the promise is that no bad things will ever happen to you. The promise is that bad things will never have power over you. That is a huge distinction. When you come to Jesus, the promise isn't you're going to have your best life, that things are always going to be easier and things are going to be abundant and fruitful and there's going to be no trouble. No, the promise is that the evil things of this world will no longer have power over you. So that thing that was done to you when you were sinned against when you were 12 years old, that thing no longer gives you an identity and holds power over you like it's a puppet master. The things that have happened to you, even the things that were stupid and you did yourself and you paid the time for, they no longer hold power over you. Evil doesn't hold power over you if you trust in the Lord. So he's saying that, but he's also saying that the God who never sleeps will never lose interest in you. 
which, which answers a, a kind of a deep question some of us struggle with sometimes. Well, well, maybe like if I'm not doing enough spiritual things, maybe he might kind of like go, go, go spend some time with another Christian who's a little more worth his time. Is that fair? You feel like I've got to do a little more, I've got to work a little harder just to kind of keep his attention? Like this is some relationship from high school? Right? I got I to write him a couple love notes. I got I to keep his attention. I got to do the things he wants me to do, or he won't love me, or he won't like me anymore. No, he's saying the God who never slumbers, never sleeps, who's going to keep you and protect you, and he's going to deliver you, and he's going to be your shade. That's, that, that doesn't happen because you caught his attention. That doesn't happen because you are keeping his attention. It happens because he decided that he loved you and he saved you. And your attitude and your, your posture isn't keeping him loving you. You can't get more of his attention or lose his attention by the way that you act. Because he is a God who never slumbers and never sleeps and he's always watching over you. So you're thinking like, oh, well, cool. Then I can kind of do whatever I want to do. Is that an invitation for me? If he's always going to be on my side... That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. If you're on the path headed towards him, you're literally moving from one place to the next. You don't get to bring that baggage with you and act like, well, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and also I'm, I'm going to stay here. That's the equivalent of making a detour and, and doing your worship routines up on some mountain idol location, some pit stop. That's what that looks like. And, and that, your heart isn't headed toward Jerusalem so these things don't apply to you. The Lord isn't your shelter and your covering if you're not on a journey towards him. So, can you start to see how the Psalms of Ascent are singing to us about leaving something and inheriting something greater, about traveling from one place to the next place? This is just the beginning because it gets better as we move along. So my goal for this study is to encourage us to start reframing how you think about your daily life. I want you to start thinking about your normal life. If you've got kids, I want you to start thinking about your responsibility to raise them up in the ways of the Lord and think about what you're doing more like a journey and not just trying to survive. What I want you to think about you got a job, you're going to school, you've got a normal routine for life. I want you to stop thinking about that routine as the thing that you just got to do so that you can get from your bed back to your bed again. I just got to do the things that I have to do in order to get, no, no, that's not how any of this works if you follow God. Everything is structured in a way that it, 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 it transforms you. That job that you don't like, he has a way of taking that thing and redeeming it in such a way that it forges character inside of you that you wouldn't get any other way. So stop cursing the path that he has laid out before you and walk this path and know that in the midst of it, he will cover you and protect you and walk with you and give you shade through it. Too often we're looking for the ejection See, we got to just, how, how can I get out of this mess? But that's not the invitation from the Word of God. The invitation of the Word of God is persevere through the mess. Go through it. Stop trying to get out of it. Watch his hand walk through you, walk with you through it. So, 
These psalms are an encouragement to us because they remind us of the journey that we're on, but it's not just these specific psalms. And I've been leading up to this for the last couple weeks, and today's the day. We as a church are going to start in a new initiative of memorizing Scripture. And the reason why we're doing this is because my desire for you is to not just read Scripture and be like, man, that's good. And then in the middle of your day, you're doing your thing, and it's like, man, where was that? I need to go i got to find where that was. I want you to get into this habit of filling yourself with this so that this is the only thing that spills out when life starts getting messy. Right? So, so I've got water in here. If things start shaking up here and this tips over, guess what's not going to fall out? Coffee. Because there's water in here. And if you fill this with water, water is the only thing that's going to come out. And if you fill yourself with Scripture, when things start getting wild, the only thing that's going to spell out is Scripture. But if you fill yourself with the nonsense that you learned on Oprah or, or some TV show or Dr. Phil, when things get rough, that's what's going to spill out, and that won't preserve you. So what I want to do is I want to start an initiative for us to start um, I want to get into a rhythm of memorizing scripture, but I need to set some boundaries for this first. This is not a competition. Because the moment I said it, you're just like, man, I'm going to wipe the floor with some other believers. When I, when I show up on Sunday, I'm going to shake it. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. You want to finish that, brother? It's not a competition. The point of this is not to to uh, start getting merit badges and, and posture yourself as better or more spiritually mature than other people. The purpose of this is for you to grow, okay? So, so we're, when we gather, I want this to be kind of a culture where, where if, you, if something triggers a verse, that you're, I want you to go ahead and finish it, right? I'd like to start starting services off with the vi- verses we're trying to memorize so that it just becomes a part of who we are. I want you to, you know, say them around your kids. Write them on your mirrors at home so when you're walking by, go to Walmart and buy some, some blackboard paint and paint one of your walls with blackboard paint and chalkboard this stuff. Make it everywhere you look. Scripture, Scripture. Scripture, and we're all memorizing the same thing. And it's not necessarily a reflection of what we're reading because I want us to understand that this is a whole thing together. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start memorizing Psalm 23. Now some of you are just like, oh, that's not fair. I already know that one. We got something else? Here's why I want to start in Psalm 23. It's nice and short, and it's filled with so much truth that if you slow down and commit it to memory, it will start popping up during your day and it will reshape how you see everything. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. Man, that's medicine for everything we're struggling with today. He leads me beside Still water. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Even when I don't want to, he makes me lie down in green pastures. And he leads me by these, he doesn't lead me by these turbulent waters. He doesn't want me to drink from from something that's going to consume me. He finds the most calm place and he says, I want you to sit, I want you to drink. So here's what we're going to do. Psalm 23, we're going to start off in verse 1 and 2. That's the only one we're going to memorize this week. Psalm 23, 1 and 2. Just spend the week meditating on it, committing it to memory, start reciting it, saying as often you can. And as we go through this each week, we'll add a little bit to it. By the end, uh, within a couple weeks, we'll have all of Psalm 23 memorized. 
All right, for those of you that are old school, all you need is a piece of paper and a pencil. For some of you that are a little new school, you want a little, you want a little help, I've done some research for you and there is an app that can help you with this. All right, so write this down if you want. There's an app called Versify. Of course there is. <laughs> Versify, V-E-R-S-I-F-Y. I've, I've tried a couple over the last few weeks and I really like this one. It's got a nice, simple layout. Uh, it uses the ESV translation, which is what I'm teaching from. Um, you can commit any version you want to memory. It doesn't matter to me, but um, I'm kind of partial to the ESV. Um, the way that the verse is structured, or the, the app is structured, you pick a verse, you put it in there, and then each day, as often as you want, you can go in and you can test yourself. There's, there's like little uh, cue cards you can use. You can um, like put in the first um, uh, letter of each word in the verse to kind of cue it. You can do a couple verses at a time and just kind of build up, and it just gives you a score. Each time you get through it without any uh, mess-ups, it just kind of builds out your score to a place where you hit 100, and I don't know, it's kind of a little serotonin release, and you just kind of feel good about yourself. So that's the one I've been using it uh, to work through Psalm 23. There's a couple of the ones I'm working on too, um, just because I want to commit to memory the scripture as much as possible. But this is what we're going to do as, as, a, um, as a, a church. We'll start with Psalm 23, 1 through 2. And, uh, and this week, what I'd also like you to do is go in and start reading 120 and 121 again. And I want you to think, not just read it and look at the words. I want, you to, I want you to think in your mind what it was like to be Hebrew, living your life, going on this journey, singing these songs and reminding yourself of what truth is. And I want you to find ways to start adapting that into your regular life. How can you find ways to talk to your kids about Scripture? How can you find ways to talk to your spouse about the Word? How can you find ways to talk to your coworkers about the hope that resides on the inside of you that he has called you to share to them? Amen? All right, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.